0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash audioboom.
1: Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. Before we get to this week's Guest, I want to talk once more about the media or the failure of the media or the expected failure of the media. We're about to embark on two stories. One is the impeachment attempt by the Republicans lacking any factual basis whatsoever to impeach President Biden. And the second is the shutdown threat, which should be Odd to your ear because, after all, the Republicans made a deal during the debt negotiations that was supposed to take care of spending for the foreseeable future. And in fact, the Senate has been complying with that on a bipartisan basis and is about to spend, uh, we're about to put out spending bills that will take us through the next fiscal year. What is the media going to do? Are they going to play the usual What ism? are they going to play the usual fake balance? You could expect stories like the following. The White House claims there's no evidence against Joe Biden. Well, it doesn't just claim there is no evidence against Joe Biden. Or try this one. There's no direct evidence to implicate Joe Biden. There's no evidence at all. Why the direct? You see, the media has this inborn aversion to what they think is taking sides, but is really telling the truth. They somehow feel compelled to tilt the story a little bit so that the Republicans don't seem so insane, so reckless, so determined to weaponize government, to borrow a phrase. And why is that? Part of that is the phenomenon that the Republicans are very good at working the refs. Um, They have beaten up on the media for liberal bias. and Part of it is just this inborn thing, this inborn um, habit that they have that they cannot bear to unbalance, in their view, the scales. The problem is that the scales are already unbalanced. You have a Republican Party that is attempting to impeach a Democratic president for no reason. The ostensible purpose is that Biden somehow benefited from his son's business ventures when Biden was vice president. The first problem you'll notice is none of this occurred during his presidency. So what are they doing impeaching him for that? But moreover, there has been no evidence that Biden ever received any money All the documents that they've subpoenaed have come to naught. Their star witnesses have confessed they really don't have any evidence that Biden benefited. So what is this all about? Yes, his son has gotten into a lot of trouble over the years. But what does this have to do with Joe Biden? And the answer is nothing. But the press is going to play this, mark my words, as a somehow legitimate inquiry. After all, it's just an inquiry, they say. Well, what happened to the vote that Speaker McCarthy said they were going to take prior to launching the inquiry. Oh, it didn't happen. That's because even among Republicans, they don't have a majority to proceed. That's how strange, how reckless, how inappropriate this exercise is. And this, once again, will be a test as to whether the media can stand up to Republicans, can level with the American people, and tell the truth. You'd think that that wouldn't be so hard, but it is. And then we come back to the shutdown. The government runs out of money September 30th. And at that point, they have to cease all operations except for national security and some emergency services. So what's going to happen? I suspect that the Republicans are going to continue to stamp their foot to say that deal we made with the debt ceiling, we really didn't get enough concessions from the White House, so we're going to hold out for even more. Or worse, we want a whole bunch of concessions on a bunch of other stuff like abortion. How is the press going to portray that? They could on one hand say, oh, the parties are at loggerheads, Oh, the White House is refusing to budge from their position. Well, yes, they're refusing to budge from a position that was negotiated and deal with this very same speaker. It's a deal that the Republicans in the Senate apparently are taking seriously and they're going through the appropriation process. So once again, Are we going to level with the American people? I say to my media friends, are we going to portray the Republicans accurately as reckless, as dishonest? Or are we going to pretend that they're more sane than they really are? And I'll end with one other issue that is going on right now, and that is the holdup on promotions within the military. As many of you know, the senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, who had a distinguished career as a football coach, no political, no governmental experience, has decided to hold up every single promotion. That's everyone from the commandant of the Marines to the lieutenant looking for his uh, captain's bars and everybody in between. And why is he doing this? Because he wants a vote on you guessed it, an extreme abortion measure that does not have the support to pass in the Senate or the House. And what's happening? The entire military is being held at bay. And it's not only them, it's their families. They don't know where to move to. They don't know where they are going to be stationed. They don't know where to enroll their kids. And why is this going on? It's because Republicans don't have the nerve to rein in their own people. They are going to let this guy hold up the military, which the military keeps telling us is adverse to our national security because they don't have the guts to wrestle with him and to wrestle him to the mat. Now, I will acknowledge one thing. Democrats could change this if they wanted. They, after all, do have a majority in the Senate. They could end the single voter, the single member bar on appointments, but they don't really have the guts to either. And that's been a disappointment. And I think in some sense, although this is a Republican hangup, Democrats need to play hardball and they should be willing to take the step and take away this privilege, even if it's just for the military. Are they going to be the party of national security? Are they going to be the party that stands up to Tommy Tuberville? I hope so. So stay tuned. My guest this week is one of my favorite consultants, one of my favorite analysts, Simon Rosenberg. I have a special place in my heart for Simon because he and I were two of the very few people leading up to the midterms in 2022 that said, red wave? I don't think so. Simon was able to see through the glut of phony polls that Republicans flooded the zone with and just determined that, first of all, those had tilted uh, the polling averages, but secondly, that there was something going on and that something that was going on was Dobbs. So without further ado, Simon, welcome to the program.
2: It's great to be here.
1: It is terrific to be here. So let's start briefly with 2022. What were you able to see that most analysts didn't?
2: Well, part of, I think, the big innovation is that Tom Bonnier and I and others, you know, we're looking at data beyond polling. We looked at the performance of the Democrats. This is post right? Performance of the Democrats in House special elections across the country where we outperformed our 2020 numbers by about seven points. We saw a very strong performance in Kansas, right, where we outperformed public polling by 24. 20- we then saw similar signs of Democratic intensity in fundraising for our candidates, where our candidates were out raising Republicans by four to five to one, something that was unprecedented in a midterm. And then we also saw it in voter registration numbers. Tom did a lot of analysis showing that voter registration immediately after Dobbs became more Democratic, more women and more young women in particular. And then we saw it in the early vote. And And all which was we did better in the early vote in 2022 than we did even in 2018 and 2020, which were elections where we performed even better than the election overall. And so all that data was showing pointing in the same direction, which is heightened Democratic intensity, frankly, lack of intensity on the Republican side. And so what we speculated was that, you know, this is all it's very likely Democrats were going to do better than expected and it was going to be a close competitive election. And then, Jen, you know also that part of what happened is that Republicans flooded the zone at the end with these sort of fake polls, which pushed the commentators into believing the red wave had returned. And we projected that as well. So, you know, the important thing is that that basic idea that we've seen heightened Democratic intensity, overperformance in the when people actually vote around things that are about voting has continued into 2023. I mean, the big story. Is that we've seen it in Jacksonville, Florida, and Colorado Springs and in Ohio and Wisconsin. And Five Thirty Eight has just released a study that I haven't seen that I saw just in the last few days showing that in the 38 special elections that have taken place in the United States this year, um, Democrats have outperformed the partisan makeup of the district by ten points.
1: That's that's huge.
2: incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. So, you know, listen, it the biggest force in our politics since 2018 has been fear and opposition to MAGA. And it was in 2018, it was in 2020, it was in 2022, it's been in 2023, and it's likely to be in 2024. And given that Republicans are even now becoming ultra MAGA, super MAGA, MAGA squared, right? It means that, you know, they're in trouble next year. And that's one of the primary reasons I remain very optimistic and bullish on our chances.
1: Let me ask you about polling per se. Um, first of all, polling this early. And second, whether polling is just incapable of providing us with useful information because the model for turnout is somehow broken, or they simply um, don't account for certain uh, factors. What's your view? And This time we're talking not about ones that are intentionally biased towards Republicans, but ones that are put out by the newspapers, by the network and the broadcast news. Tell us a little bit about what your take on that is. Yeah,
2: you know, the independent polling in 2022 was actually pretty good. Um, You know, it was that the averages got sort of polluted by this fake set of polls. I mean, I, I think I have to say that because this general sense that polling is sort of collapsed or is failing. I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's entirely true. I think part of what's happened is that it's gotten much more expensive to poll well, so we're getting more junky polls because response rates have gone down. And there's also just a lot more Republican polling in the system. And so you've got two things that are contributing to sort of a higher degree of junkiness than in the past, right? I mean, for to do very high-quality polls, it's very expensive, and so there's less of it. And that's a problem. It doesn't mean, by the way, that people who are doing the polling or explaining that it's a little junkier than it used to be, um, and then the second thing that Tom and I learned, and I, along with colleagues of ours, last cycle was that there are times when you poll where you know the data is not good, and that the poll wasn't good, and that for whatever reason, you know the numbers don't totally add up. And I'll give you an example. I mean, the CNN poll last week that got so much attention—they had Biden's approval rating being minus twenty-two. In in the four other major polls released last week, it was between minus 8 and minus 12, um, which means that their poll was an outlier. It just was an outlier. It was way outside where all the other polls were on some really basic questions. And CNN will never admit that they know because they paid a lot of money for this and they got to put it out. And so I hope someday that there becomes more self-awareness among the Polling out- outfits that when they have data that they know is outside sort of the mainstream, that they explain that, right? They acknowledge that this is an inexact science, things aren't always so good. And that I really have come to believe on the two polls that kind of drove the recent freak out. I don't really pay any attention to anything that Rupert Murdoch pays for, the Wall Street Journal poll. And second of all, the, the CNN poll had a lot of problems. And so You know, just this week, Morning Consult, which is a much higher sample than the CNN poll, does a weekly track, very high quality, has Biden up two, it had Biden up three last week, right? So there's there's already just in the national polling, not all the polls are pointing in the same direction. And then finally, on the question about this early, where we are now is what I call asymmetrical engagement, meaning that the Republican coalition is significantly engaged, right? They have a primary, they have ads, they're talk to, their leaders being challenged in unprecedented ways. And so if you're a Republican, an average kind of Republican voter, you're in the game. I mean, you're having to think through the election. you got to make a decision who you're going to vote for. If you're a Democratic voter, you have no reason to be engaged. And I think part of what happened in that CNN poll was that they came back with heightened Republican intensity in the presidential election when we've had these 38 elections around the country showing heightened Democratic intensity. And they should have been more rigorous, frankly, about acknowledging that and recognizing that you know that that alone, that this asymmetrical engagement, as I call it, it's going to be with us probably until March or so, right? When there is, you know, Trump could be the nominee as early as mid-January. I and mean, the, the election, if he wins Iowa by twenty points, the election's functionally over at that point. He'll be the he'll be in essence the nominee by the middle of January, late January, and then our coalition will start focusing and engaging. And until then, we shouldn't actually expect it's okay that people are, like, coaching Little League and taking their kids to school and making dinners and not obsessing about politics. That's actually healthy. And our coalition shouldn't be engaged right now. And But we need them to be engaged next year. And and I think that based on everything I just went through, you know, every election we've, in the last several elections, we've had very strong democratic overperformance. We've been performing at the upper end of really what was possible for us um, and I expect that to be the case next year as well.
1: Couple questions just to follow up on this. First, the questions that are asked seem often to be driven by the narratives that the media has already settled upon. <laughs> Wouldn't you prefer a younger candidate as if there were a perfect younger candidate standing right. by? They don't ask that question, by the way, of Republicans who have a candidate who's just a few years younger and arguably in much worse physical condition than President Biden. But Who
2: spent far more money on a facial, you know, his makeup and hair, and right. uh, and his you know surgery to make him look exactly. younger. Right,
1: right, exactly. So I, I kind of have a problem in those organizations that are constantly putting their foot on the pedal because they're simply reinforcing a narrative that they themselves have created. Yeah,
2: you know, it's it's an amazingly smart. Question and I and I you know and I loved your column this week on on polling and I appreciate you quoting me that, but it was very thoughtful and smart it's frankly been sent to me and shared to me by lots and lots of people you know I I think I think that look part of my I've been in this business for a long time right over 30 years I was a producer and writer for ABC News I grew up in the in the media business before I went into politics and I think what happened with the red wave in 2022 was alarming to me. Um, because there there was a lot of data showing that the red wave had not returned. There was a lot of data. And to get to a place of red wave, it was, in essence, people, you know, the media sort of got bullied into believing that this had happened and was, um, you know, and, and, and sort of capitulated, in essence, to the right-wing narrative noise machine in a way where there was a lot of compelling alternative data showing it wasn't the case. And, I, and these are a lot of people that I know really well, I've worked with for a long time, and it was stunning to me how much that my analysis would end up proving to be correct was mocked and ridiculed by prominent people, right, um, who we all respect and care about, as opposed to considered and where they wrestled with it, right? There was a mocking that happened as if, you know, there, and, and I, I really have become part of the reason I've started a substatic and I shut my think tank down is that I, I, I realized that I needed to do more. I needed to fight harder. I needed to be more effective. I needed to reach more people. I needed to, because the, the threat to our democracy that MAGA represents, the normalization of MAGA, the sort of the, normalcy bias that's in our system, because in part, we've been so well governed for so long in the United States that we're having, we're, we're having really, I think, significant cultural and structural problems with identifying the gravity of the threat the MAGA represents. And the media has become deeply complicit in it. And, and I, I, it, it freaked me out a little bit, I'll be honest. And so I've changed my entire career and and the way that I engage in politics because of the sense that I needed to do more to challenge kind of the laziness and the complicity of the national media, in normalizing what is arguably the greatest threat to American democracy in our history, and treating it as if it's just you know like going to a baseball game right and and what the box score is in a baseball game right, and and so um, I think the questions you're raising are really important, which is there is. At some point, right, not everyone's part of this. There's an awakening that's happened, as you're aware, and you're part of that awakening of people who sort of broke out of the, you know, the framework of our politics and said, I'm not going to accept this any longer as being normal and routine. We have a lot of work to do to continue to put pressure on the people who make a lot of money and become very wealthy and speaking to the American people about our politics about the false story that they're telling every day, that there's two parties and, you know, they're both sort of equally virtuous and equally full of vice when there's one really constructive party that has continually made things better for the American people when they've been in power and one other party that's continually let us down and has now become something that's deeply dangerous. And this sort of need to create both sides, right? The left and the right, the Democrat, Republican, you know, is is become so distorting. Um, And so pernicious that, you know, we have a lot of work to do and it's why I'm really pleased to be here today. I'm very, um, you know, great to be in community and conversation with you because of your courage and your leadership over the last few years and really trying to reject this sort of facile way that media has responded to a, a deeply, you know, troublesome moment in our history.
1: Absolutely.
0: Go to Shopify.com slash Audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Audioboom.
3: Let's talk about MediCal. You have a choice and Melina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Melina. Visit meetmelinaca.com. Let's talk today.
1: Let's turn from polling with just one final observation, and that is there is something called margin of error. And when (laughs) pollsters and news people report polls that it's tied, that could mean anything from one candidate is 3.5% or whatever the margin of error is ahead or 3.5% behind. So I think part of the problem is the hyper-specificity that they invest in their poll work, as if 3.235 is the right number. Let me,
2: let me address this really quickly, because I've written about this a lot, and I and I think this is really important, right? Um, a poll is like a sketch. It's not a painting. It's a sketch. It's There's a lot of detail that's left out there's a lot of uncertainty in it and the polling business overrepresents the accuracy of these polls and so do the media organizations promoting them and so does the whole polling industrial complex that there is sort of not an acknowledgement of what you're describing and I'll and I'll add to that right is that because response rates have gotten have kind of lowered it's harder to get higher sample polls I mean I would just encourage just as one basic guideline try to stay focused on a couple of things when you read polls right higher not bigger sample sizes more accuracy anything under five or six hundred sample size you almost have to dismiss out of hand as being in not a big enough sample to get to accurate information the 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 margin of error rate goes up through the roof. And also ignore polls that are of adults and not registered voters or likely voters. Asking people who are not registered to vote how they're going to vote is, at, on the face of it, kind of absurd, right? And, yes. and you know, and there is, I, I'm, I've been sort of shocked, frankly, how some very reputable polling organizations are, you know, are asking, for example, undocumented immigrants how they're going to be voting in an election when they're not even citizens of the United States, right? Why that, that opinion is illegitimate. It's not important. And so I, I think there's there's a lot to be done. And it's I'm really grateful you bringing all this up because Tom Bonnier and I have been talking for a year about putting out sort of our thoughts about how to improve all of this. And what's been a little shocking is that despite the massive failure of the red wave in 2022, there's been no effort to reform the business. There's been no self-reflection. The New York Times is the only major media organization that did, in my view, sort of a sort of very serious self-reflection on the failures of their reporting in, in 2022. But for example, I mean, and so did ABC News to their credit. I mean, the severance with Nate Silver, I think, came about in part because of this sense that 538 has was flooding, you know, our public discourse with ridiculous polls without doing anything about it. So I give ABC News a lot of credit. But a lot of the other news organizations have continued to report, as they did before, as if nothing had happened. And you could make the argument that the, the fall for the red wave was the, was the most significant media political failure of the modern era of American politics. And because what happened wasn't something other than the red wave. It was the opposite of the red wave, right? Where we showed intensity and they didn't which is the opposite of what happened. And so, you know, this is all showing that we we have a lot of work to do. And and by the way, the Washington Post, I would put into that box, other than the the editorial side, the Post, you know, the the main news part of the organization has done no articles or anything about what happened in 2022. And I've had conversations with some of your colleagues about this on the news side. And so we've got a lot of work to do, but it's why – The work you do, the work all of us are doing who are trying to hold our media to a higher standard and to do it in our own commentary, to put in the rigor that even the questions you're asking today are very informed and very smart about sort of an arcane part of our business. We have an obligation, all of us, in a democracy, to do our best to tell the truth to our fellow citizens. It is an obligation. And we have an enormous responsibility for those of us who have platforms to treat our fellow citizens with respect and dignity to the point that we speak to them truthfully. And that part of our system has, 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 has grown. you know, we've lost that in this country. I mean, the Republicans lie with such impunity. And it's frankly a core element of their illiberalism, right, and their contempt for democracy that they lie so. And and it is it is remarkably shocking. But anyway, I went off tangent here.
1: That's quite all right. And nothing speaks to the separation between the editorial and the news side of the Washington Post than my complete inability to affect the news coverage. Yeah. So take that for what you will. <laughs> um, let me you can't go stop t- trying, though. Can't I know, <laughs> I, I try every day. Um, let's go to Dobbs. When... Yeah. Dobbs, first of all, it was leaked and then it came out. There was this school of sophisticated, cynical thought that eh, won't make any difference. Some people will be happy, some people will not be happy, it will all be awash. I didn't quite see it this way because what I saw was something similar to what I saw in the wake of the 2016 election, which was women in particular took this very badly. And what I mean is they reacted with indignation, anger, ferocity, um, because they felt that they were being attacked as full and complete citizens. It was much the same reaction that I saw, and I documented in my book, to the election of Donald Trump. And lo and behold, that does seem to have been the case. Um, what's your take on the impact of Dobbs, both on Registration and intensity, and also kind of the issue pattern that you expect in 2024.
2: You know, I I, I wrote today uh, on my Substack a post where I articulated something that I've that's been, been kicking around in my head that I haven't been able to get out on paper yet, which is that since the 2020 election, the Republicans have done two things, each of which could keep them out of power for a decade or more. One was trying to overturn an American election and end American democracy, pretty bad thing, right? Certainly one would assume (laughs) there would be penalty for that in the next election now that the Department of Justice has, you know, confirmed that this was a party-wide conspiracy involving hundreds of Republican leaders across the country. One would assume that there's going to be penalty for that in this election and and in elections to come. But the other was Dobbs and the abortion extremism. And I think it's important to recognize that it's it was both, right? It was it was both the ending of Roe, but it was also the extremist bills that were passed in some of the, the states that made this a, a, a material threat to people, even if it wasn't a material threat to them in their own state where they were living. And, and I think that the sense that Republicans have just gone too far, they've gone too crazy, that they're not in control any longer and they've become malevolent, right? These are both, all of this was reinforced. And I think that you know, we did a poll. The first moment where I really, really believed the election could be going differently than the red wave was that I was involved in a polling project in mid-May last year of Hispanic voters in Arizona, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And we, this was right after the leak, but before Dobbs had happened. So we asked questions about abortion in, in the poll. And what was amazing about the poll results was that in In all three states, we were doing better than 2020 with Hispanic voters, which was the exact opposite of what we thought we were going to find. And it was consistent across the board. It was not, you know, the data was very similar in terms of the difference. And it was shocking. And I wrote a memo about it and I tried to get all my friends who cover politics to write about it. Nobody wrote about it, right? Because it so bounced off the narrative of both Hispanic voters and also just the broad, you know, the red wave was coming. And so, but the, the data on, the, on abortion in those polls was incredible. You know, Hispanics are the most pro-choice group in American politics. It's the opposite of how people think about this, in part because they're so young. And we saw incredible numbers, you know, um, for abortion, choice, women's reproductive freedom in these polls. And, you know, it was – so we concluded, and I wrote a whole separate memo, and, and this is in May – and that, you know, the abortion issue is going to, could really be a disaster for the Republicans just based on this very small sample of people that you would assume would have a slightly more conservative view of this, right? So there's no question that Dobbs was a before and after moment in our politics. I mean, there's no question. We knew this. I, part of the reason my stuff went viral in last year was that, um, we had that special election in Nebraska that happened on the Tuesday after Dobbs. It was a Friday, was Dobbs. We had Tuesday after where Democrats outperformed our 2020 numbers in an election where we spent no money, by the way, uh, by like 10 points. I forget the exact numbers, 10, 11 points. And then we had uh, Navigator did polling that week, the first week, and there was a dramatic change in the data um, of, for independent voters. And the Republican... Uh, approval rating among independent voters plummeted in a way that you just never see in polling i mean you so you started seeing in the first early polls dramatic shifts which just doesn't you know polls are like they move slowly over time things very seldomly change quickly and because a lot of people aren't paying that close attention and so it's hard for an issue to really change people's opinion quickly. so we had a lot of evidence Early that the Dobbs issue was going to be consequential in the election, and I think you're right. I think that for, I, I think this issue though has mutated into more than just reproductive health. It's become a sense of reinforcing the illiberalism of the Republican Party and jamming things down people's throats that they don't want, sort of their disrespect for majority opinion. I think this has become a, a, a devastating issue, and as I've told people I've been working full-time in democratic politics for 31 years and I started in 1987 and I went back into the media business but there's never been an issue that is of, of like this in modern American history where it's an issue of such importance to so many people and one of the two parties is at 10 you know 15 percent 20 percent 25 30 percent almost every issue in our businesses in the forties, fifties, in the forties and fifties, right? It's like 42, 58, 45, 55. This, depending on how you ask the question, right, is consistently producing data where the Republicans are in the teens and twenties and thirties. And we've just never been, we've never seen a party adopt such an unpopular position in modern American history on something that's this important, right? That that matters this much to this many people. And I my own view is that as I said during the election last year, is that the pain for the Republican Party on this could last for decades. Because if you're a, a 25-year-old, you know, Latino couple in Texas, and there's now a 10%, 20% higher likelihood that your wife dies on in a hospital due to a miscarriage, are you ever gonna look at that party the same ever again? You know, where you've now endangered your wife's life. I mean, and uh, for political reasons, and so I, I think that this is an issue where we're only at the very beginning. I think of understanding the enormity of of this and how and how this has just fundamentally changed everything in our politics. I think any comparison of twenty twenty four to twenty twenty or twenty sixteen is 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 a waste of time because of this. This is a before and after, and as I've said, I mean, we saw all this heightened performance, as we talked about in the beginning, after Dobbs in 2022, we're seeing this similar pattern play out all through 2023. So we've now had over a year of elections where Democrats are performing consistently way beyond expectation. Republicans are underperforming. And I think as we look to 2024, the question is, how much can we use this to continue to grow the anti the, the never trump or never maga split in in the republican party and cleave off you know more and more voters from republicans because it's my hope that what happens in 2024 is that democrats get to 55% that we win the election by 10 points that it's seen the election is seen as a clear repudiation of maga and this kind of extremist politics we need that so good Republicans can someday hopefully take back their party from the extremists that have taken it over, which is what our goal and aspiration has to be. We need the Republican Party to be a, a normal center-right political party again. And, and I think this issue is – I just I'm so – I'm so amazed at how difficult this is going to be for Republicans to manage politically because imagine being in a meeting. With Republican political strategists and then the ideological warriors like Josh Hawley, where somebody says, you know, Josh, if we keep running on this, you know, we're gonna we're gonna lose elections for the next generation. And Josh Hawley's response is, But how can that be? I mean, we're preventing those people from killing babies, right? Like they I don't think they had any idea in their head and how the kind of extraordinary public uprising that has happened since jobs, the money, the volunteerism, the unprecedented grassroots rebellion that's taking place. It's devastating for them. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. They have no way out because they don't have an idea. you know, they, they, I was explaining to somebody today, the 15 week abortion ban, which they view as a compromise is, is like fantasy, right? It's like, it's crazy. It's, it's a woman and a woman and her doctor or nothing, right? That's it. There's one answer here, which is that, the decision has to be left up to a woman and medical professionals in any attempt to restrict or is puts the government in a place where it, doesn't, it shouldn't be. And so there isn't any middle ground position. Youngkin is like in a fantasy world about this. And it's just, but it's, but they're ideologues, they're theocrats, right? I mean, this is, they can't see this stuff rationally and it's, it has become, uh, you know, I think that Alito will go down in history as the guy that may have destroyed the modern Republican party.
1: Well, that would be a delicious irony. I would also say that in every election where there's been an abortion referendum yeah. or an indirect issue on abortion, for example, yeah. the effort to raise the level that you have to obtain to get a referendum passed in Ohio, which is going to be now at issue in an abortion referendum, or the Wisconsin Supreme Court, on um, which – Abortion was one of two major, major issues. You saw the most extraordinary results. Kansas is a deep red state. Wisconsin is a 50-50 state. And that Supreme Court race was won by 11 points.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. And
1: in Kansas, um, the pro-choice side won overwhelmingly. By by a mile. So I think.
2: In Ohio, too, right? We just won by 14 points. We got to 57% in Ohio. And and Jen, the thing to realize from a political standpoint is that if this continues, right, over time, it's going to erode even further the Republican coalition. I mean, those voters may stick with Republicans for an election, right? You know, they may vote with us on the abortion ballot initiative and then vote. Republican in the the next election, but their relationship to the party is weakening and it's attenuating and it's, and it's loosening. And some of those folks are going to come over at some point, right? If this continues, the Republicans can't win national elections again, in my view, with this abortion position, because it it is going to take what is already a weakened, you know, the Republicans have averaged 45% in the last eight presidential elections. We've averaged 49% something, I mean, we're closer to being a majority party, they can't lose another point or two. I mean, they don't have any place to, to go, and I think that one of the places I would encourage you to be, I know you write about this a lot, is that I think the Florida ballot initiative is going to be one of the most interesting because, because DeSantis made, I, I think, just an extraordinary error by going from 15 weeks to 6 weeks in Florida. It's going to take effect in the next few weeks, next few months, um, we know that the Florida team has gotten enough signatures to get the question of rolling that back. It would put it back to viability on the ballot. And that just given the dynamics of Florida, how important it is as a state, I, I think that ballot initiative next year, if it clears all the various hurdles it has to clear and gets on on the ballot, will be one of the most important things that happened in American politics in 2024. Florida is not a red state. It's not a conservative place. People go there to get away. It's there's a libertarian streak in Florida a little bit um, historically, right? Lawton Childs, We think about some of the politicians that have come from there. And and DeSantis misread his electorate on this, I think. And so this is an opportunity for there to be an incredible repudiation of one of the worst politicians that have ever been produced in American history, Ron DeSantis, in the in the twenty twenty four elections. And so. I think that's one of the ones I'm really paying close attention to.
1: Interesting. Well, Alito and DeSantis, an unusual pair for Democrats to be thanking, but (laughs) be that as it may.
0: Selling a little or a lot. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash audioboom.
3: Let's talk about MediCal. You have a choice and Melina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Melina. Visit meetmelinaca.com. Let's talk today.
1: I want to get to your 55% in a moment, but let me first ask, with the Republican decision to proceed on a impeachment effort based on nothing, I don't mean based on a little, I mean based on nothing, and the threat once more to shut down the government, is the MAGA label becoming reinforced and reinforced to the point at which, for example, Senate Republicans, which would not, rather not be associated with either of these things, are going to get swept into it. Is this a rebranding of the entire party now as this irrational, reckless MAGA party?
2: I think it's already there. I mean, I think if you look, um, I think the ability for the Republicans over the next 14 months to create distance from MAGA is going to, it's hard for me to see, regardless of whether Trump's the nominee. I mean, I think that if you just project forward, you know, if, or let's, Morning Consul last week um, in their weekly track had Trump at 60 in the Republican primary, DeSantis at 15, and Vivek at eight. So MAGA was at 83% of the Republican primary <laughs> audience. And I, I think that, you know, the die is cast in essence. I mean, Trump's going to it's very unlikely Trump's not the nominee. And if he isn't, it's Ron DeSantis, who is arguably a more virulent strain of MAGA than even Trump is. And so what will be on the ballot next year, regardless of who the nominee is, is both Trump's ongoing banality and just awfulness and his, you know, his attempt to overthrow American democracy, his trials. This will be all Front and center in in the election next year. Now it's pre or preordained. They can't stop it, right? And the other thing that they're not going to be able to stop is DeSantis' ex- you know crazy right wing experiment in Florida, which is something that we're going to also be able to run on, saying if you elect any of these guys, this is what you're going to get, right? And you know most anti immigrant bill passed in modern American history. We go down the list of all their of all of his awfulness. So we as Democrats who work in politics, we have more material to label them as being not okay, gone too crazy, out of the mainstream, whatever your language is for that, than we've ever had because they are more extreme than they've ever been. And now we know through the, now with the appearance of Vivek and DeSantis and now the impeachment stuff in the House, we know that this is much bigger than Trump. We know that, and this is where I think the, the Jack Smith's indictment of Trump was so fundamentally dangerous for the Republican Party, which is that he's established that the effort to overturn the election and American democracy was a party-wide conspiracy. It wasn't something that was limited to Donald Trump and a handful of people. This wasn't like Watergate. This was something that where party leaders and party officials, including Ron and Romney McDaniel, who's on camera admitting to having recruited um, the fake elect some of the fake electors this is now the republican party so jen the party that you know the other party which has the, been the party that ended slavery and the party that helped end the cold war and with ronald reagan has also now become the party that tried to end american democracy and that's going to be part of the republican brand forever and there's nothing they can do about it and because they did it and it was a party-wide effort and you know there were 19 people indicted in Georgia, but there were 30 unindicted co-conspirators who could all be indicted at some point, right? I right. mean, my view is that the trials around January 6th and the, and the effort to overturn the election could last years, decades, the way the Watergate trials did. And so the pain for the Republicans on this issue, like abortion, may just be beginning and, and not be something, because I don't think the American people really understand the gravity and enormity what's happened because it just all the the prosecutions have just happened during the dead of summer and people weren't paying attention. So I think this impeachment stuff just reinforces to regular voters how much the Republican party has lost its way. And my other view is that part of the reason they're doing this is that over the summer, it became much harder to attack Joe Biden, the president. Inflation had come down. His border plan is working. We now know the murder rates in the United States across the country have come way down. We know, um, and so on many of the central attacks that the Republicans were making against Biden as president, they evaporated over the summer. And so they needed to feed the beast. And so what did they do? They're now moving on to him, attacking him as a man, as a father, as a husband, business partner, and not as president. The problem is with that is that you try to, you know, they can't win an election on that. They, If they can't indict him as president, you know, Donald Trump is the other, <laughs> the worst human to walk the face of the earth in the last 50 years, you know, they're not going to be able to make headway with this, these other issues. And I think it's a sign of incredible desperation, actually, and weakness, not strength uh, for the Republicans. And I think it will be seen that way uh, by the American people. I mean, I think that this contrast between Joe Biden, you know, I, had a, I was in England a couple weeks ago and I had some meetings with the labor party and one of my labor friends said, it seems to be a good moment for dull men with a plan. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, I thought, you know, he was talking about Germany and other places. I was like,
1: yeah, I was like, I kind of like
2: that, you know, dull man with his job returning, my friend. Well,
1: when you have a lunatic outside your house raving and ranting, (laughs) the dull guy seems just fine. Um, and seems very reassuring. Well, I certainly, um, agree with all of what you've just said. And I think the point about running out of material against Biden is very insightful. That's why we've seen a return to the he's too old. You know, this guy can travel 40 hours to Ukraine. He can go on a yeah. whirlwind tour of Asia and they will still come back to it because that's all they have.
2: It's but, all they have for now. Yeah. And, and and it's and it's a sign of incredible desperation and weakness. And And they all know it, by the way. They all know that they're saddled with one of the worst candidates in american history they know that joe biden's been a good president they know and and they also are aware i mean the desperation is also coming about the fact that dozens of them are going to get indicted and many of them are going to go to jail and so there's going we have to anticipate and this is something i'm sure you will be writing about that their willingness to bend the rules break the rules you know undermine norms in our democracy is only going to get worse in the next 14 months it's not going to get better right? Because their
0: desperation Uh, is going to to grow. Absolutely. Let's bring
1: our program to an end by talking about 55%. When I first saw your analysis that if we can get to 55%, we can really make headway on democratic reforms on the democratic agenda. I thought, yeah, it'd be nice if I were the queen of England too. But then I read a little further. Tell us what 55% means, and why it's not a pie-in-the-sky aspiration. So I'll go
2: really quick for time reasons. Um, You know, we, from 1992 to 2004, we averaged 47% of the vote in presidential elections. And then I and others identified uh, two ways to grow our coalition with two parts of the electorate that were growing and changing, which were Hispanic voters and, and millennial voters. And we built a politics around reaching those folks and to with the purpose of expanding our coalition. Barack Obama, it happened in 2006, but Obama really institutionalized it in 2008. And in the four presidential elections since 2004, we've averaged 51% of the vote, We jumped four points. Um, That's the best showing, by the way, of the Democratic Party since FDR's presidency, right? Where we've been averaging over 50% over an extended period of time. And so... What I tried to do is to think about if Trump was really as awful as I thought he was and going to be so degraded, how do we take advantage of that? How do we grow our coalition even further? And so what I've put out is a thought piece to challenge the family, right, to think about this, saying that there are at least four groups where we could see us growing between now and, you know, through 2024. Young people, Hispanics, uh, never Trump or never MAGAs, right, the world you know well and um and abortion i think all four of these areas are are areas of opportunity for growth and expansion and even if each of those four things only give us one point nationally right then we go from four and a half to eight and a half percent and we get up to you know close to 55 but i also showed that if we just did one other thing which is we held all the votes in 2020 constant and just changed one thing in 2024 which is we got the people under 45 years old to vote at the same level as their population distribution, which is not a crazy thing, Um, Biden would win by 10 points. And then finally, we're seeing Democrats hitting 55 and above again and again and again. And I don't don't think this has been registered adequately in our political system. And we got to 59% in Colorado last year, 57 in Pennsylvania, fifty-five in Michigan, fifty-four in New Hampshire, and what was supposed to be a terrible year for us, we just got to fifty-six in Wisconsin, fifty-seven in Ohio. I mean, the Republicans haven't been getting to the upper fifties in battleground states, you know, since the nineteen eighties, right? And you know, we've been, you know, consistently now getting up into places of very rarefied performance, you know, in in highly contested battleground areas, and so it's my belief that we need to be entering this election with a mindset of expansion and growth, that we're strong, we're winning. We've been kicking their butt. It's not about defense and you know fear, uncertainty, and doubt, but it's about Joe Biden's been a good president, the country's better off, the Democratic Party is strong. We need to grow our coalition and we need to be open to growth. It's a mindset, right? It's a way of polling. It's a way of organizing your resources. It gets into the nature of how a campaign is run. And I'm pretty confident that even with Joe Biden, um, you know, not being the greatest communicator in the history of American politics, that the structural nature of this election allows us to imagine growing our coalition and getting up to 55% and making this uh, election a repudiation of MAGA. I think there's an urgency to this. And the urgency is that we can't, go through another election with mixed results where the MAGA adherents can say, oh, maybe we didn't get beat that bad and we're going to hold on. We have to weaken the grip of MAGA on the Republican Party. It's a national, it's a, it's a global priority for democracy here and everywhere. And so our goal is not just to win, but it's to blow it out. And Democrats, as you know, right, we just don't think that way, um, Because we haven't had a real blowout presidential election all the way back to 1964, in many ways, you could argue. And so blowing out presidential elections are like not the things that we did. That's what Republicans did. And I think we have to change all that. Things are different now. It's all the things we discussed today, right? Their betrayal, the serial betrayal of the country, the Dobbs issue, the trials are going to be going on. And so I, I have been challenging my friends and the family to not accept kind of the red wavy kind of narrative, which is that they're strong, we're weak. And that's why even this data that I released today about 38 special elections where we're outperforming, by the way, outperforming party identification or party lean by 10 points consistently in 38 elections all across the country is consistent with a 10 point win in in the fall, right? In next year. So my point about this is that this is possible And given the urgency about the message it will send for democracies, our democracy, democracies all around the world, Democrats have an unbelievable obligation to try to pursue it because of the consequences of a massive repudiation of MAGA next year. Um, And shame on us if we don't have the gumption, the courage, the vision to go take advantage of what I think is an historic opportunity.
1: Well, from your lips to the voters' ears, um, (laughs) let's hope they take your counsel to uh, heart. Thank you so much for coming on the program, Simon. Um, It's always fun to talk to you, and you provide insights that others, frankly, don't. So thank you again, and thank you for all you do.
2: Well, thank you for all you do. I mean, I read your column religiously. I think you're also... um, not marching to somebody else's drumbeat, uh, which is really important. And this is a time where people have to go deep inside themselves, right? And be connected to what's true and not, you know, follow the herd. And so I'm really grateful for, you know, your courage and leadership as well, Jeff.
1: Well, thank you. And that was Simon Rosenberg, wow. A good positive message based on facts. And that's, I think, what Democrats have to hold in their mind. I think they have gotten into a mode of disbelief, as he said, ever since 2016, when they told were told they're going to win and they didn't, they have forever feared that whatever they have is going to be taken away and whatever they thought they could do isn't going to be. And that kind of defeatist mentality is the worst possible message you can have in politics. And in a week in which the Republicans are once again going nuts, trying an impeachment with no factual basis, trying to shut down the government again. I think Simon's observation is dead on, which is they've become a radicalized, crazy party. And people mocked Joe Biden when he called them super MAGA or when he called them neo fascist Joe Biden was right. And that was the theme that frankly helped carry the day for many Democrats in 2022. And although... For example, the summit map doesn't look as favorable next time around. I wouldn't rule out making some headway in states that are somewhat unusual for Democrats. So I think the message from Simon is don't drive yourself crazy with junk polls. First of all, read Simon, Um, read quality analysis and look at the results, look at what facts not projections but facts what we have already accomplished and that will perhaps keep you in a better mood and a saner mood so if you enjoyed the program please tell your friends ask them to listen and follow on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever they get their podcasts bye-bye